This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction, the information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today I'm joined by Ty Burr, who is a film critic and pop culture columnist for the Boston Globe for two decades now. From 2002 to 2021, he currently writes Ty Burr's Watchlist, a popular e-newsletter for movie and TV recommendations. He is the author of the critically acclaimed books, Gods Like Us on Movie Stardom and Modern Fame, The Best Old Movies for Families, and The 50 Movie Starter Kit, What to Know If You Want to Know What You're Talking About. As a senior writer and editor for Entertainment Weekly throughout the 90s, he wrote reviews and features and oversaw the magazine's initial coverage of the internet and new media. A member of the National Society of Film Critics and the Boston Society of Film Critics, he teaches courses in film and criticism at Boston University and Emerson College. In 2017, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Criticism. Anyway, Ty, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for Absolutely. Having me. It's, it's a pleasure and I'm super excited. Uh, to get into the conversation today, it's a little bit divergent from the material that I normally uh, normally cover uh, on this uh, on the show. But as a fan of movies, I couldn't pass up the opportunity because I'm a huge cinephile myself. So I'm excited to dig in here uh, to the content. But I always like to start off with kind of your origin story of interest. So that is exactly how did you become interested in movies? Oh well, that's that's a yeah. As with anybody who does this for a living, it's it's a personal story, and it goes back to when you were, we, you know, we were all young. Um, in my case, um, well, my father passed away when I was quite young, uh, and when I was fourteen, my mother said, "Hey, there's a movie coming on TV tonight um, at midnight. Uh, that was your dad's favorite movie. You should, you know, stay up and watch it." And um, it was a Marx Brothers movie called Duck Soup, and I had never watched an old movie before. Um, uh, I probably, I don't know if I, if I purposefully sat down to watch a black and white movie before, but I'd never seen anything like this. And I, you know, and it wasn't just sort of the connection, uh, with my dad, but also opening a, a window to this whole world of, of, um, classic movies. So in my teenage years, uh, I was also lucky to be growing up in Boston at a time when the revival, uh, movie house uh, boom was going on. So there'd be all these theaters that would be showing double bills of classic films like, you know, African Queen or Bringing Up Baby, but also midnight movies like Rocky Horror Picture Show and Harold and Maude. Uh, it was a great time to be growing up, you know, growing up, going to the movies. Um, mm -hmm. 
It was also a good time to be growing up reading uh, film criticism because Pauline Kael was still writing in the New Yorker, and she was a hugely formative experience, uh, uh, hugely formative um, uh, influence on me as a critic and on many, many, many others, uh, and not to mention others who were writing criticism at the time, as well as music criticism. It was kind of a a boom time for uh, rock criticism as well. So all those voices were, were sort of circulating. Um, so I was watching a lot of movies. I was writing a lot of movies, uh, writing about a lot of movies. I went to college and ended up being a film studies major. Um, and uh, probably, you know, to, to the amusement of my of my mom, I actually ended up making a living at it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and got out of college um, and ended up working at, at home box office actually during the 1980s as a researcher and a programmer, putting movies and sort of an in-house movie critic. Um, from there, I jumped to Entertainment Weekly, pretty much as that magazine was starting out in 1991, and um, came on board as their video critic. At that point, video movies were coming out on video like as much as a year after they were in theaters. So it made sense to sort of think about them differently and you know combine different movies together and talk about them that way. Uh, and then in 2002, I um, got offered the chance to come back to Boston, which is where I grew up. Um, I'd been living in New York and uh, be one of the movie critics at the Boston Globe uh, alongside uh, Wesley Morris, who's now at the Times. Um, and uh, I was there for 19 years and for a variety of reasons, which I can discuss, I decided I wanted to try something new. Mm -hmm. Well, fantastic. So when you were uh, when you were in college, so you said you were a film studies yeah. Uh, major in college. Now, did you always know that you kind of wanted to go to the critic route or was it more of, you know, I'm just kind of interested in films in general at the moment and I'm not exactly sure what I want to do. So mm -hmm. I guess, how did you decide that you wanted to become a critic, that this is what you wanted to do? You know, when you, when you are studying film at college, there's a pretty clear divide between the people who want to make it and the people who want to write about it. Um, there's overlap, but, uh, and in, in some schools, like at NYU, that's absolutely formalized, and they're not even in the same building. You know, cinema studies and film and TV, um, which I think is actually a shame. Um, at, uh, um, so, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> ah, um, so I always was interested in the history. I was always interested in conversations about them. Um, I did make some student films uh, and had fun doing that. But that aspect never really engaged me the way that writing about um, uh, film and popular culture in general um, really engaged me. That's I, I like to have those conversations on paper and with people. Okay, so it was okay. So you made some films, and you're like, "This isn't quite my cup of tea." But the the writing aspect of it really appealed to you, is what you're saying. Yes, yeah. well, writing, okay. writing about them exactly. Okay. And, and I did like, have okay. friends in college who went, you know, went off on to become, you know, cameramen and and uh, set designers and directors. Um, and you know, they just knew, they just knew early on that's they wanted to get their hands dirty in the nuts and bolts of making them. Mm -hmm. Now, since you had an affinity for the writing aspect of it, did you ever consider perhaps really like perhaps a screenplay or something like that, where you were actually writing the stories? Or... I wrote some screenplays when I was yeah. in my twenties and thirties, and they were not very good. Let's just okay. I see. <laughs> um, some people okay. have the knack for writing dialogue. I do not have the knack for writing dialogue. Okay. Um, uh, and you know, you learn what your strong suits are. 
And I, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, when you're younger, it's kind of about experimentation, figuring mm -hmm. out what you like, what you don't like, what you're good at, what you're not good at. And sometimes things that you really love, and if you're not very good at it, you can't, unfortunately, you you can't make a, a living off of it. No. And you I really have to play into your strong suits. And that's okay. I mean, if you really love something and you work really hard at it, and at the end of the day, you're still not that great at it, you can always just keep it as a hobby. Yeah. And it also yeah. has made me absolutely appreciate the well-written screenplay, the people who can do it um, mm -hmm. and do have that ear um, and that ability to create characters on page that then become alive on the screen. Yeah. And as you know, the screenplay is so important too. I mean, the writing can really make or break a movie. Mm -hmm. And I love movies, as I said, you know, I said not too long ago. And there's a number of very well-directed, visually stunning movies out there. I'm thinking more towards like the DC movies or, or Marvel movies. And just the writing wasn't there. And mm -hmm. I think the movies are great from a, a directing standpoint, the acting. But if the writing isn't very good, it can just, the movie just kind of falls apart. You know, to me, the most extreme example of that and I guess it's a moot point because it's the most successful movie ever released is Avatar. Um, okay. It's a terrible script. It just is a no, yeah. script. Um, but it doesn't matter. You know, it created this world that millions of people wanted to uh, dive into and presumably will again when the sequel comes out later this year. Yeah, absolutely. I, and you know what's interesting about that movie is I couldn't agree with you more. I think from a, a visual standpoint, it's absolutely breathtaking. Avatar <laughs> and what they were... You know what I think it was directed by James Cameron, right? Yes. Correct. Yeah, and pushing the envelope from the visual aspect of it, but it was essentially like Dances with Wolves from the from the nineteen nineties, that Kevin Costner movie of you have a foreigner going in, yep. and then it's just like it was almost the same exact movie, but you have it with an alien race on a different planet. It seems like <laughs> I think I actually said that in my review of Avatar that it is the same movie as Dances with Wolves. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah, it was it was much noted at the time. Yeah, I had that epiphany when I saw it. I was like, it's like this is Dances with Bulls, except you have <laughs> blue aliens. <laughs> and I guess that's all that matters for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I suppose. I mean, when that movie came out, Dances with Bulls was 20 years old at that point. So, that's right. yeah. Uh, anyway, okay. All right. So you're you're a uh, you're a film critic. And you love writing. That's what appeals to you about this whole space. Mm -hmm. I need to know, because obviously you're a huge fan of movies, what are some of your all-time favorites? Um, well, when you are a professional movie reviewer, you get asked that question a lot. It's often- I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I do have an answer, and I have. I actually have two uh, movies. Um, and it's true. They're like the, my two favorite movies. And one of them is the one everybody's heard of. And that's kind of what, you know, when somebody asks you that, they kind of want to hear an answer that is like a movie they might have heard of at least. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe have even seen and can kind of go, oh, yeah, that tracks. Um, and the other one is one that nobody's heard of or very few people have heard of. But um, and that's not why I picked it. I just love it. It's just happens to be kind of obscure. Um, the one everybody has heard of is The Godfather. Um, okay. to me, that is an all, an, a, a perfect film. Um, you could not improve on it, which is kind of hilarious when you knew how chaotic the production of it was. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there are many stories like that. Casablanca is another example that people think of as a perfect film that was a train wreck when they were making it, but somehow it all comes together. Um, but The Godfather for me is like, especially now that it's 50 years old now, 
it's it's kind of a dividing line between classic Hollywood and the modern era um, in terms of genre, in terms of on-screen violence, um, in terms of performance. Um, it's just, and it still holds up. It, it plays slowly, I think, by today's standards. Um, uh, it played slowly, kind of slowly back then, but it draws you in. It's so rich in theme, in performance. I just think of that scene with Al Pacino looking at his his steady hand holding the lighter and realizing, oh, I, I've got what it takes to be you know, the next Corle the next Don Corleone. Yeah. Um, just all those little magic moments. Uh, I, I could watch that movie and have watched it many, many times. Uh, the one that nobody has heard of, Although it's actually finally, after decades of being unavailable in the United States, is actually uh, on the Criterion channel now and has been released on a Criterion disc. And it is a French film from 1974 called Celine and Julie Go Boating. And I love it so much. I even have a phone case with a, a shot. <laughs> um, and it That's is too funny. A French director named Jacques Rivette. He's probably the least known member of the French New Wave that produced Truffaut and Godard and Chabrol and all these, you know, uh, celebrated French directors of the 60s. Um, okay. And it's about two women who become friends in Paris in August when nobody else is in Paris because they're all on vacation. And it's kind of a Alice in Wonderland tale where they discover a house, kind of like a Charlie Kaufman meta movie three decades ahead of schedule. They discover a house in which it's a house of fiction. The same story happens inside that house every day without change. It's like when you pick up a novel, the same story, you know, whenever you pick it up, um, except at the end of the day, a little girl ends up dead and they decide they're going to somehow monkey wrench their way into this house of fiction and change what happens. Um, and it's a delightful comedy, but it's very, very French and it's three hours long. And for the first half, nothing seems to be happening. Um, and then some things, things start to happen. And it's one of those movies that just magically pulls itself together in ways that you didn't imagine uh, a movie could. And in the process becomes very much an essay about how we watch movies and how we tell, listen, you know, how we um, consume stories, mm -hmm. not just in books, but also on, on screen. It's a lovely film. I highly recommend it. Interesting. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounds fascinating. And when you say it's very French, what exactly does that mean? I mean, obviously it's a French film, I mean, um, did the did the French during that time period have a very particular style that they that they produced? Well, I'm, think, I'm thinking of the, I'm thinking of the of the, the fact that it is um, it's quite uh, it, it's not plot driven. Although at a certain point it it becomes quite plot driven, um, mm -hmm. but it's more about atmosphere and um, and character. And uh, as I said, for the first half of it. You're just following these women around Paris as they're sort of monkey wrenching each other and having fun, and you're not quite, you're not sure where it's going. Um, mm -hmm. And either, and I would imagine that an American audience or any audience used to commercial Hollywood movies, it's going to get frustrated with that. Um, okay. And a lot of international films tell their stories at a slower um, and more um, less obvious pace. And I, I don't mind, you know, I like the Hollywood films, but I like those too. But you have to bring a you have to slow down your met metabolism and just let the film happen. Um, I see. And it will take you interesting places. All right. I think I definitely have to check that one out. I mean, of course, I've seen The Godfather, but this other French movie that you have, that you mentioned, I have not seen. Right. Yeah. And who doesn't love The Godfather? Oh, my goodness. What a classic. <laughs> I actually spoke to somebody 
the other day who had not seen it, which struck me because it is one of those movies that, you know, you sort of have to check off um, if you, you know, <clears throat> want to say you love movies. Yeah, out of all of the kind of gangster oriented or mafia oriented types mm -hmm. of movies of the past, you know, decades, The Godfather is is the pinnacle. Like that's the one that you need to watch. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> Sopranos wouldn't exist without it. You know. Um, yeah. Uh, and and so much of what we think of as you know, media gangster culture, including real life gangsters who took their you know mafia men who took their cues from the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a case of uh, life imitating art. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So those are your favorite movies. I'm curious to hear, do you have a short list of directors that you are kind of always impressed by the movies that they, that they, uh, that they make? Yeah. Sure. Um, I mean, and the classic era and the modern era and all the eras in between. Um, the classic era, I think Howard Hawks was the greatest director of the Hollywood classic era. Um, I think that I'm always interested in what Scorsese is going to do. Um, Scorsese, and, yeah, he's and, brilliant. And, and I do feel he is unfairly tagged by, oh, he only makes gangster movies. It's absolutely, <laughs> and, you know, one of these days watch Silence, which is about, um, you know, uh, priests in medieval Japan. Um that's about as far from gangster movies as you can get. Uh, oh, wow. Um, there are, um, oh, what's, whenever anybody asks me about specific movies or directors, every every title and name flies out of my head. Todd Haynes. <laughs> Todd Haynes is a okay. director who I think I'll watch anything he does. He always surprises me and he always brings incredible technique and a lot of emotion to his films. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, Claire Denis is a French director. I'm just finishing watching her latest movie. It's not maybe not her best. It's called Stars at Noon. Um, mm -hmm. But she is always going to do something interesting and off offbeat. We'll take a genre film like her last film was a science fiction film with Robert Pattinson, um, but fill it with atmosphere and and um, emotions that you can't quite put uh, you know a label on. Um, so uh, David Lynch. I'll watch anything he does, um, even when it's way, way out there, because I think he takes chances that, uh, you know, uh, that hardly anybody does. You know. mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, there's some directors in there that I actually haven't heard of. So I think I'm going to have to go back when we get done with this, uh, when we get done with our discussion here and we'll have to look these directors up because <laughs> I'm always kind of on the search for new directors and the movies that they've made just because I'm interested, you know, I like being entertained. I love movies. So mm -hmm. I'll definitely have to check some of those people out. Oh, I love, you know, I, I love being entertained too. And that's, uh, you know, again, another sort of false idea that people have that, you know, movie critics just sit there with their monocles and their ascots and, <laughs> and you know, just want to just only watch, you know, documentaries about, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I don't know, um, obscure documentaries about tractor pulls, you know, but no, we love to be entertained. We got into this business because we love movies. Mm -hmm. um, director, one director who I absolutely adore who's making movies right now is a guy named Ryan Johnson, um, okay. who made Knives Out. Um, he made, ah, okay. he made uh, uh, um, The Last Jedi, the, which is the Star Wars movie that all these hardcore Star Wars fans hate and everybody else loves. I think it's actually the best directed of all the Star Wars Wars movies. Um, he did a great little film noir set in a modern high school movie called uh, Brick, 
Uh, he's just terrific. And he's got a new Knives Out movie coming out called Glass Onion with Daniel Craig. Um, he, he is somebody who can go make a genre film, um, but like a mystery, like a mystery, like uh, Knives Out, uh, but fill it up with wit and cleverness and new ideas and just really revive it. Uh, and I don't think there are many people who, um, enjoy, he just really enjoys making movies. And you can tell that because his movies are really enjoyable to watch. So I have heard of Knives Out yes. and I've heard wonderful things about it and I still haven't watched it yet. And it's definitely, I think it's saved to my list on Amazon and, mm -hmm. and I definitely need to watch it. But I've heard I've heard good things about it. Yeah. You say it's you said it's great, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go watch um, that now. Yeah, and watch it before <laughs> the, the sequel comes out, which is going pretty much straight to Netflix, um, which is a whole subject we can talk about it as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. So as a critic, what factors are movies graded on? So when you sit down and you're asked to, well, essentially, yeah, grade a movie or rate a movie, what are you looking for exactly? Um, it's a good question. And basically, I want the movie to be the best movie it's trying to be. Um, and I sit down with an absolute blank slate in mind. And I actually try to avoid articles before I go in. Um, you know, I'll know who the director is and know who the actors are, but I don't want to read anything that's going to predispose me one way or the other. I actually try to avoid movie trailers for that reason, because mm -hmm. movie trailers uh, often lie about the movie and are cut to not actually give you an impression of what the movie actually is, but to get to sell tickets, to get butts in seats. Um, mm -hmm. So they can be wildly misleading. Uh, so I avoid them. I spend like the first 15 minutes just letting the movie happen. Let them, and I, I never want to lose that too. Um, you just let the movie happen and you figure, oh, this is the movie it's trying to be. Um, whether it's just pure entertainment or something more serious or something that looks like entertainment, but has something else going on in it is trying to be a little subversive. And then you start thinking, you just start watching it and almost grading it against itself. Um, grading it against, okay, here's what you wanna be. Are you doing it? Are you sort of going beyond? Are you falling short? And like I said, you, it, you almost like uh, divide your brain in half. Half of your brain is just letting the movie happen and enjoying it or being engaged in it and just watching it the way we watch movies. Mm -hmm. And the other half is taking notes. And so, okay. <laughs> you know, the score is pretty good here, or really, a, a, you know, overbearing here. That's a really good performance where the camera works really impressive um, and brings out certain things. Um, I saw this new movie last night at a screening called Till. It's the Emmett Till story uh, about the, the um, young African-American boy, 14 year old boy who was killed um, by whites in the South in 1955 um, and has um, led to a lot of uh, protests and act activism and, and civil rights le legislation. Um, and um, it was directed with a camera style that was really quite intimate and brought out a lot of um, nuance in how these people are reacting to the situation. It's really about his mother, who mm -hmm. was uh, quite instrumental um, in drawing attention to what had happened to him and making it a national story. And you know, she's played by an actress who's new to me named Danielle Deadweiler, who's fantastic. I think she's probably gonna get some awards nominations. Uh, but the way that the camera work stayed close to her and picked up just nuances of movement and emotion, um, you know, so I noticed that. 
And that's something that when I write about the film, I am going to talk about how that camera work um, is, is really important to how, not just how the story is told, but the emotions that it conjures up. I see. So, so you're looking for, I mean, you're looking at the camera work, you're looking at the acting, you're looking at the score. I mean, is there like a set checklist that you no. kind of go through or is no. it more of just from experience of looking at, you know, hundreds of films at this point? And like you said, just taking the film and asking yourself, what exactly is this film trying to be? And right. is it is it doing a good job at that? Um, I don't have a checklist, um, but I let myself notice things for that are working, that aren't working. Um, mm -hmm. So I will notice the camera work um, and I will notice the score and I'll notice the, the production design, the look of a film. You know, okay. that's something that people don't really think about, but there is every movie has a production designer who's responsible, not just for the sets, but really the whole look of the film, aside from the actual camera cinematography. Um, mm -hmm. and those, those two work together. Um, so you just, you know, I've been doing this for 35, 40 years now. You train yourself to let yourself notice things, but you're not saying forward, you know, taking checking things off. I, I do take notes in the dark. I mostly write down bits of dialogue that I think I might want to quote in the review um, while it's still fresh in my mind. Um, and, you know, sometimes just, you know, sort of write down my reactions as it's happening um, in handwriting that is an absolute mess that I can't relate, <laughs> but, but I try. We all do take notes. Okay. Yeah, the reason I ask is because I'm really curious because I, I, I'm not familiar with the, the critic process. Mm -hmm. And as a science-oriented individual, what I do is, is very particular. Like there's a set checklist, there's a set methodology of how you do things. And it's it, the goal is to be as objective as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, the movies, the drama, you know, theater, things like that, these are art forms. And with art forms, human expression, creativity, it's very difficult to lump that into an objectivity type of box. And, you know, everyone's going to watch a movie differently. It's going to resonate with them differently. So I was just curious as to, like, how it is that a movie critic tries to be objective in a we sense don't. when it comes to, or you don't at all? We you don't. Just, Okay. No, there's no such thing as a subjective movie review. Um, okay. Because I, I'm a subject. I mean, I have my own way, as you just said, I have my own way of seeing it. Um, the trick is to be honest about your subjectivity and to know your blind spots and know what you respond to um, and, mm -hmm. and be honest with yourself as you're processing it. Um, but that's not all that goes into a movie review or any review, any piece of criticism. There's also a lot of information. There's context. Um, and so on one hand, I'm trying to write, get the reader to relive my subjective experience of watching the movie, but okay. I'm also giving them a ton of context. And I think of a review as, yeah, as a taco of, uh, objective context, um, surrounding a subjective opinion. I see. So objective context, objective context, meaning, What's it about? What has the director done before that's relevant? Um, if it's relevant, what have the actors done before if that's relevant? Um, if the is stories based on truth, such as Till, the movie I saw last night, um, 
give the basics of the story um, and maybe note where it, you know, it, again, if it's relevant, if the movie departs from the facts in ways that are um, worth mentioning, mm -hmm. uh, bring that up. In other words, bring a, a, enough information for the reader to understand not just the experience of watching the movie, but what is, what's everything that's surrounding it, um, which may include some cultural conversation as well. Um, so there's a, every, every review has a different shape. Every review I'm talking, I mean, you know, I may, yeah, mention the music and the cinematography, but I'm coming at it from a different angle every single time. You know, and what I think, you know, going back to the subjective versus objectivity, and I was just thinking about this as you were, as you were talking now, I think part of what makes art, so whether that's film or actually like paintings or anything like that, so enjoyable, at least for me, maybe maybe you as well, is the subjectivity of it. Is that I'm, it's, it's just me and I get to enjoy this piece of human creativity. And I can sit there in my own little world and just enjoy it. And I mean, I can analyze it, I suppose, and try to be objective, but sometimes it's just fun to be entertained as we were talking right. about earlier. Right. And just kind of taking it all in. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and sometimes it's it's, enjoyable even if it's not a, a movie that you know specifically out to entertain just let it happen let the experience of it happen and analyze it later i think you know some people sometimes you go into a movie saying what's the symbolism about um mm -hmm. and you know I, I know very few filmmakers who really set out to well this is going to mean this and this is going to mean that it's more about emotional states recreating emotional states um i think somebody like david lynch is for instance is particularly good at that um but you mentioned you know, watching it for yourself. And we do, but let's not forget that movies were really made to be watched um, in a theater with a crowd um, and as part of a, a group. And I think there's nothing that can replace, and I don't think it is gonna get replaced, um, although it's going through changes, um, nothing can replace that, that feeling of being in a packed theater where everybody is just, you know, almost more than the, the sum of its parts, just having this reaction to a great movie, you know, whether it's a, a scary movie, a funny movie, a drama, um, but the feeling, the emotions that, that sort of just connect and spark in that crowded room, um, it's, it's just a totally special thing and you cannot replicate it. And I think it's it's hardwired into the human experience. I think it goes back to, you know, the, the, the campfire around, you know, the cavemen around the campfire yeah. telling, you know, the stories of the hunt. Um, we want to experience stories as part of a crowd. No, absolutely. And like you just said there, it's definitely hardwired into us, wanting to be around other people and being entertained in groups. I categorically agree what you said about the movie theater never going away. I, I can't imagine. I know that it is going through some changes, but there is just something about the movie theater experience that you cannot replicate at least I haven't seen any sort of other technologies replicate it to the degree that going, going to the theater, walking in with your group, mm -hmm. going to the concession stands, getting some popcorn, some freshly popped popcorn, the smells sitting down in the seats and the big screen, it's cool, it's dark. And then just sitting together and enjoying a movie. Yeah. And I know particularly when it comes to comedies, you know, if I were to watch a comedy by myself, I am going to laugh significantly less versus if I'm watching a comedy with other people. And it's because like you were just saying there, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. 
Right. It's all of these humans interacting with each other, being close, enjoying the entertainment together. Right. And it really laughing, makes... Yeah, laughter is infectious. It really yeah. is. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful I, experience. The new movie Bros, the gay romantic comedy. <laughs> okay. I've, I've seen it twice in a theater. Um, and I can I can imagine that movie. It's very very funny, and it is exactly uh, it is exactly the kind of movie that gets audience laughing because the the lines are so witty that it's just it's got a lot of good jokes, and it's a great movie to see with an audience because it's funny and it's fun, mm -hmm. and it would be a very different experience watching that at home by yourself. I mean, forget the the obvious things you 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 can't wholly focus on it in the dark the way you do. Um, in a movie theater because you're looking at your phone and you're getting up to go to the bathroom and go get some you know food and and that that experience we, we're not giving 100% of our attention to it at home we never do um, so as much as I understand why we're all watching at home these days and and um, appreciate how good some of the TV shows are now um, I I do not think that that experience that crowd experience is going to go away no, I, I completely agree. It's definitely not the same watching at home versus the movie theater experience. And I like what you said there too about the distraction aspect of it, because I know that I'm definitely distracted by my phone when I watch things at home. And I'm always searching for something that can capture my attention more. It seems like when I'm supposed to be watching the TV being entertained there, but then I'm scrolling on my phone through some sort of social media nonsense or something like that, trying to, trying to, be more entertained, so to speak. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a universal condition. And, yeah. and for something like that movie I was talking about, Celine and Julie, it's death to a movie like that. You, yeah. know, you have to like turn off the lights and let that movie just kind of happen on its own rhythm and not be distracted, you know? So, it, you know, that's one reason I feel like a lot of mainstream movies are so fast and so, you know, in your face with lots of action, lots of CGI is to keep you from, you know, looking at your phone. Yeah. So the, it doesn't happen to me in theaters, but like like what you just said there, um, the newer movies, the, the directing styles trying to just keep you super engaged because they have to compete with your your smart device. And, and it never happens to me in the theaters. Maybe it happens for other people in the theaters more than me. But I know that when I go into the theater, it's almost it's sacrosanct. And you know how they have the the, the like the warning message, yep. you know, or whatever. Uh Make sure to silence your cell phones. I always do that. I always make sure to silence it. I put it away, and I'm like, I'm not looking. I'm not looking at this until the end of the movie, and I just let myself sit back in that seat and just be taken in by the experience. Well, you are an increasing rarity because I see people pull out their smartphones in movies at all. Do they? What did I just see? The um, um, I saw um, Amsterdam the other week. Went out with my wife to see Amsterdam, the, the new David O. Russell movie with Christian Bale. Um, and it's it's a weird movie. It's kind of wacky. Um, and um, there are parts that work and there are some dead spots in it. And when uh, one of the dead spots, the woman next to me, um, not my wife, she was on the other side, pulls out her phone and starts scrolling through her phone for like, you know, 10, 10 15 minutes. And I leaned over and said, can you not do that? And she grumbled and put it away. But, uh, <laughs> um, but no, that was totally uh, okay behavior as far as she was concerned. Yeah, <laughs> those uh, those 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 devices—they're just so addictive, and they're they're specifically designed to be that way. So, right. um, so I can see that the movie the movie industry is definitely having to compete with them, and 
it's a bit of a shame because that's when they have to compete, then that's going to direct, like you said, it's going to direct how the movies are created. Mm -hmm. And you're going to then show like a preference towards certain directing styles mm -hmm. versus others. And if those certain directing styles, if they, you know, if they are very pop are more popular than other types of maybe noirs or dramas or something that are very good movies, but they're just different, different directing styles. Those are, you're just going to basically have a funneling towards one. You're not going to have a whole lot of diversity is what I'm trying to say. You're going to have a decrease in diversity. Right. Right. Well, you know, we've seen that, you know, what, what I've seen over the, the 20 years I was at the Boston globe was the splitting of the movie industry. And by that, I mean, making them, distributing them, showing them into two separate, almost completely separate tracks. There's the studio to multiplex channel, which is mostly franchise properties, comic book movies, Fast and Furious sequels, um, more Star Wars movies, you know, whatever is familiar, lots of lots of um, action, lots of uh, digital effects. Uh, those are made by the major studios. They are distributed by the major studios and they go to the multiplexes. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, and then there's, you know, what I sort of uh, think of as the independent route, um, what we used to call the art houses. But uh, all the movies that we kind of movies we used to call movies, dramas, comedies, romances, suspense, thrillers, uh, just, you know, movies, um, those don't often get to the multiplex anymore. Um, they are made by independent um production companies, sometimes the independent wing of a major product, uh, studio. Um, they have a completely different distribution mechanism. They often roll out at film festivals like Sundance or Toronto, um, where they're first seen by people like me who start the drumbeat of hype going, hopefully. Uh, and then they will come to independent theaters, um, you know, with some overlap in the multiplexes, but they will, you know, go to the, the, the sort of the hip downtown theaters or, you know, well, those, the, the old independent theaters that a lot of towns still have. Um, and they, they're told differently. They've got a different style um, and they reach a different audience. And the only thing that makes, that sort of brings them back together is that everything ends up on streaming again. Mm -hmm. So that I do think that audiences do have a chance to see some of these different kind of movies, even if they don't live near an independent theater. And that includes international films as well. Okay. Interesting. I mean, I think it's quite telling that um, a foreign language film won the Best Picture Oscar a couple of years ago for the first time ever. Uh, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, um, mm -hmm. which is a yeah. you know pretty ruthlessly funny satire. Um, but I mean, that says something about the changing, um, uh, motion picture Academy, but it also speaks to the fact that a movie like that, which would never have gone beyond the art houses and the independent theaters is permeating a larger consciousness. And I think primarily through streaming. So I guess there's pros and cons to technology then. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, there's definitely pros and cons to technology. And I think technology innovations in the uh, in the movie industry, it's clearly no different because mm -hmm. every aspect of uh, every aspect of society where there's new technology, it always seems like there's pros and cons. It's just kind of have to give and take. And a hell of a learning curve. Oh, yeah, definitely. So so what films are you most excited about this year? So um, there's a lot of stuff. It's been an odd year. Um, 
the industry is still coming out of COVID and trying to figure out, you know, and, and the top moneymaker of the year was, was a sequel, of course. It was the Top Gun sequel, um, Maverick. Um, although when the new Avatar film comes out, that may top that. Um, one of my favorite movies of the year uh, has been, actually been playing since, I think, earlier in the year, and it's still playing in theaters, um, including some multiplexes, and it's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, have you ever heard of that movie? So um, I have heard about it, and I've heard wonderful things, but I have not gotten around to seeing it yet. It is it is a wonderful movie. It's absolutely crazy. You might have to see it twice just to pick up on everything that's happening in it. Um, it stars Michelle Yeoh, who you uh, American audiences would know from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragons, one of the great Hong Kong action stars. Um, and she plays a, a immigrant Chinese woman in America who runs a laundromat and whose life is a total train wreck and is miserable. Um, and then discovers that in a parallel universe, she's actually uh, you know, a brilliant scientist who's <laughs> something that's going to uh, potentially destroy every universe. Um, and then in another parallel universe, this is a movie where there's infinite parallel universes. Uh, okay. Including one in which she's basically Michelle Yeoh, a, a famous movie star, uh, action star. Um, and it's really funny. Um, it stars as her husband, an actor who, the actor whose name escapes me right now, um, who was in the Goonies as a child and in the Indiana Jones movie as a child. Um, he's all grown up now and he's okay. tremendous. Um, it's funny. It's crazy. There's a lot going on in it. Um, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but um, I think it's actually closing in on a hundred million uh, U.S. box office, which is kind of amazing for a small movie like that. So I wish more people would see that. Um, and that's been around all year and it's still um, playing theaters. But there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out because it's that time of year where the studios roll out their serious movies. Um, uh, there's one opening this week, uh, Friday, um, called The Banshees of Inna Sharon, which is written and directed by Martin McDonough, who gave us three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. I don't know if you saw that. Um, mm, I did not. Um, a couple of years ago. Uh, stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as two friends in Ireland that set on um, the uh, Isles of, of um, Iran. Um, it's a beautiful setting. Two friends who start feuding and the feud just starts escalating and escalating and escalating. That's very funny and often quite shocking. And Martin McDonough, he's a brilliant writer. He's written plays that have played on Broadway, um, but he's also quite hilarious. Uh, so that I think uh, I'm looking forward to people discovering that um, there's that new Knives Out movie, Glass Onion. Um, and when you do see Knives Out, you will be hopefully highly amused by what Daniel Craig, you know, that very serious <laughs> British actor who's also James Bond. Well, he, he plays the detective in both the movies um, who has got this Southern fried accent. His name is Benoit Blanc, and he's just hamming it to the skies. And that's one of the reasons the movie's so enjoyable is that he's, he, you know, great actors when they decide that they're just going to ham it up can be mm -hmm. so much fun. Um, and that's, he's a delight in both the movies. So the new one is called Glass Onion, a nice out mystery. It's got Edward Norton, Kate Hudson, um, Janelle Monet. It's got a good cast. Uh, and um, it's just about as funny as the original. Um, what else is coming out? Um, there is um, White Noise, an adaption of the uh, the novel um, 
by uh, Don DeLillo from the 80s, uh, directed by Noah Baumbach, who made Mar A Marriage Story a couple of years ago, starring Adam Driver. Um, it's got a really good cast. I haven't seen that one yet. Uh, set in the modern day about a family that's in a modern day that's kind of a teetering on the edge of an apocalypse, which sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I feel like, you know, that's that's our reality yeah. um, at the moment. Uh, what else is coming? There's 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 uh, plenty of good films. Uh, Steven Spielberg has a movie um, that's his really his first autobiographical film. Um, it's called The Fablemans. It's a fictionalized version of himself, a kid growing up in California, making super eight World War II epics in his backyard while his parents are getting divorced, um, played by Michelle Williams and Paul Dano. I have seen that. Um, it's a lovely film um, uh, written by Tony Kushner, um, you know, the, the great playwright um, who's worked with, um, who wrote Lincoln with for mm -hmm. Spielberg, He's written a lot of good things. Um, and, you know, Spielberg, one of the great things about Spielberg is that you sit down to watch his movies and you know you're in good hands. You know yes. you're in the hands of a, a classical narrative master. Um, and that's the, the truth, you know, that's true of this film too. Uh, but it, this one obviously carries a little extra charge of emotion because he's, he's talking about his parents here. Um, okay. Clearly, you know, there's there's still a lot of emotion there. Um, so yeah, those, those are some of the ones that I'm, I'm looking forward to. Very interesting. And I really like what you said there about Spielberg, because I think that everybody knows who Steven Spielberg is. I mean, he's been making good films for like 50 years now. Correct. <laughs> yeah, Correct. I mean, Jaws was the first big blockbuster where you would actually go back to the theater and see the movie more than once, which Correct. was, I guess, unheard of for the time. That yeah. was a Spielberg flick, and that came out in the late 70s. 77. Uh, yeah. No, um, 76, 75, 75. Oh, was it mid-70s? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Star Wars came out in 77, and those two changed, changed, the, changed the movie world and the, and the culture, too. Um, but Spielberg was making TV. You know, he's like making Twilight, episode, Twilight um, uh, Night Gallery episodes as early as the early 70s, and he made a very, very good TV movie called Duel um, mm -hmm. with Dennis Weaver. Um, that was his first feature film that you can get on disc. Uh, he's, yeah, he's, he's come up on 60 years in the business. Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And he's been consistently good yes. for that long. I mean, you know, you're talking about somebody who is just a master of his craft. Mm -hmm. And I'm always looking forward to whatever it is that he's producing. I mean, one of my all-time favorite movies from when I was a kid was Jurassic Park, because who doesn't love dinosaurs? Of course. And like, yeah, who doesn't love dinosaurs when you're a kid? And it's like, uh, Jurassic Park is just a wonderful movie beyond the fact that it's surrounding dinosaurs, but it was just very well put together. Exactly. He is so. the argument. Spielberg is, is really the best argument for classical narrative cinema um, mm -hmm. and that he makes it look so easy. It's so enjoyable. Um, and one thing, again, it's something that I think people don't appreciate about people like me, you know, review movies for a living is that we're not, we're not looking necessarily looking for art. Um, and we're not always looking for entertainment. You know, like I said, you, you look to the film to be what it wants to be, but we really try to, uh, we do appreciate craft. We do mm -hmm. appreciate the well-made movie, the well-written script. Um, and that's something that I think, you know, in, this, in that case, the training, you know, being a film studies major and just having seen, gazillions of movies and have read, read a lot of histories and just being you know 
going down many, many rabbit holes, you learn to appreciate craft. You learn to see it. Um, okay. craft. Um, and that's true of any, any subject that you're interested enough in to want to master a knowledge about, whether you're okay. doing it professionally or you're doing it just, just a fan or a collector. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that anyone can appreciate a master craftsman, like somebody who devotes their time and effort concertedly for a very long time to one particular pursuit. In this instance, it's the movie experience, mm -hmm. the directing, but just sitting there, and even if it's not your cup of tea, like it's something that you're not super, super interested in, but to sit there and observe somebody's work where they just put so much time and effort into it, it's just, uh, it's really quite an experience. It really is. Um, you know, Hitchcock is the is, is the example a lot of people use to say, you know, here's somebody who is so focused on craft that the craft becomes obvious and enjoyable as you're watching, um, you know, and, and it's really almost the art of the craft. Mm -hmm. uh, and Spielberg does that as well, I think. As, so as what... certain other directors, Ryan Johnson, uh, who okay. I mentioned earlier, I think is a craftsman in the old school sense. Um, and, and that is a real part of the enjoyment of watching his films. Okay. I'm definitely going to have to check out some of his, uh, some of his movies. You said he's the Knives Out director, correct? Knives Out director. Knives Out. Okay. Looper, he directed a movie called Looper. Um, again, that Star Wars movie that, that I love and that um, other people think just absolutely detest because I think um, because they cast a different crowd of people than they usually cast in one of those movies. And I think it bothered some people. So, okay, you said The Last Jedi he directed? Yes. So that's episode eight, or is that episode? It's the second to the last one. Yeah, that's okay. So episode eight, The yeah. Last Jedi. That's one with um, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker. Come. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yep. All right, very good. No, I thought I appreciated that movie. I thought it was a bit different. You thought you think it's the best, though? Out of, I think uh, out of the, the I think three? It's, I think it's the best directed. Um, best directed, okay. Best directed, the most visual. There are scenes in that... It's like some scene on the planet where that's covered in white rock, but as people yes. move across it, yeah, it, it turns it red. Closes the the yeah. red beneath. Just yeah. visually, yep. he's just got this masterful eye and a way of constructing again scenes with old school craft um, that I don't necessarily see in some of the other Star Wars movies. Okay, um, so I, I do think it's the best. Crafted, I don't know, you know, and uh, I know people would argue with me on some of that, um, but uh, you know, I really enjoyed that one. I I definitely agree with you on the uh, that one scene mm -hmm. where they're on that planet. I I remember sitting in a theater the first time I saw that, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like it is just from a visual standpoint, just just stunning. Where you have, you know, it's covered in white. It almost looks like it's snow, but maybe it, it's like a dried out bed of some sort and then there's salt or something like that underneath yep. and it turns red as you move across it yeah i i remember being kind of breath breathtaking by uh by that particular yep. um, scene in the movie but anyway while while we're on the topic of directors i wanted to ask you about two because i'm a huge fan of science fiction so i'm mm -hmm. very curious as to what you think about these two directors so the first one is christopher nolan mm -hmm. what are your thoughts yeah what are your um, thoughts on uh, christopher nolan's films in particular um, Yes. Go ahead. No, go ahead. In particular, which one? 
Well, I loved Interstellar just because I'm a huge sci-fi nut. So mm-hmm. I thought that that one was really cool. A lot of people have enjoyed his most recent work, Tenet. I thought it was a bis- bit discordant and oh, he yeah. really failed to yeah. pull everything together on that one. Yeah. So I was um, not too pleased with Tenet, but I really enjoyed Interstellar. Um, I blow hot and cold on him. Um, okay. I, I mean, I, I think, um, what's the one with Guy Pierce, the early one, the mnemonic? Um, oh, Memento. Memento, thank you. Uh, yes. I, I think that's a brilliant movie. Um, yeah. I think Inception is is pretty incredible. I thought Tenet yes. was, was incomprehensible. Um, yes. <laughs> Interstellar, <laughs> I, I, Interstellar, I remember liking. I don't have strong memories of it. It's a movie that I probably could go back to um, and look at again. Um, I feel, and, and his Batman movies, I feel are, I think Christian Bale's great in them, but I feel like they're so heavy, um, in ways that don't resonate with me and ways that, um, um, feel a little, little self-important to me. Um, so I'm probably in the minority on that one. And I remember when, uh, the dark Knight came out and, I was at a, I was at a um, function, at a family function, uh, which a bunch of young teenagers came up to me because they knew I was a uh, film critic, and they were like, "Do you think the La- the Dark Knight is the best movie ever made?" Um, and that was sort of <laughs> the, the, the hype around it when it came yeah. out, in part because of um, Heath Ledger having died. And um, no, I don't think it's the best movie ever made. I think it's a pretty good Batman movie. Um, but so yeah, I um, I feel like people hold him up on the level of Kubrick and I don't think he's quite there. Um, but I also think he's an incredibly skilled movie maker and I'm always going to be interested in what he does next. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think again, this is somebody who is quite brilliant at craft. Um, and, um, and that's great. It's great to see. So who's the other one? So the, uh, the other one, and forgive me if I'm pronouncing his last name incorrectly, because uh, I think he's French Canadian, is Dennis Villeneuve, Villeneuve or Villeneuve? Villeneuve. 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 Yeah, Villeneuve. Yeah. He most recently did Dune. Uh, before right. that, he did Arrival. He also did Blade Runner 2045. It seems like he's been primarily focusing on almost like science fiction for the past right. his past right. couple movies. Another director who I feel takes himself way too seriously. Um, <laughs> okay. I just, his movies weigh a ton. At the same time, there are some of them that I think are I, I adore. I, I love Arrival. I think that's a yeah. really good movie. Um, I was really much more taken with Dune than I was expecting to be. Um, I think as as Blade Runner redo and meh, you know, I, I it's I, the world can live without it. I it didn't add anything to my mind. Um, he. Um, I just wish he'd lighten up a little bit. I would love to see him try a comedy, although that might be a disastrous idea. Um, (laughs) Again, you know, both he and Nolan think big and that's really great. And Mm -hmm. they think outside the box and that's really great. And, um, and they, they visualize things that we've never really visualized before. And that's really great. Um, I sometimes miss the pop joy the pop joy that comes from from sitting down in a movie and just being picked up and taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got that in Arrival um, just because the level of, of uh, visualization um, was so, you could tell he was just totally grooving on that. Um, and um, so, you know, again, somebody I'll always be interested in what he does next, but 
also sort of aware, and, and he is very, both Nolan and he are very, very keen on insisting on the primacy of the theatrical experience and the, and the celluloid experience um, for as much, uh, you know, digital effects as they have in their movies. Um, they love movies. They love, love movies. They grew up loving movies. And you cannot fault a director who has that much love for movies. Um, uh, at the same time, I think Villeneuve um, is a bit of a legend in his own mind. Uh, and that's that's cruel to say. I've, I've, I've <laughs> him where he is, you know, clearly just, um, he, he's not egotistical. He's just really into what he's doing. Um, okay. Yeah. But I am a little wary of of certain directors who, and maybe not themselves taking them seriously, but everything around them treating you know what they do as 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 major portents, uh, major cultural portents. Um, and I don't know you can get you can get burned that way sometimes. I see. So I think it's I think what you said about Dennis is is definitely fair. I did absolutely love Arrival, though. I mean, I mm -hmm. think what I what I like most about Dennis is I think that I just love the way he films. I don't know. Every scene seems to be so beautiful. Yeah. And I really saw that come forward in his Blade Runner movie. I mean, I didn't really like the story too much in, in, 24, in, in the Blade Runner 2045. Mm -hmm. But just the way that he filmed it, the, the sets, the different colors... I, I just thought it was I just thought it was breathtaking. I thought yeah. it was a beautiful film in that sense. Right. Um, right. I thought yeah. the I thought the acting was pretty good. I mean, I love Harrison Ford. I like Ryan Gosling. I just didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't think the story was that interesting. Right. Um, so and story's got to be there unless yeah. unless you're pointedly saying this is not about story. Um, yeah. And there are movies that do that and do that well. Um, you know, movies that are much more about atmosphere. Um, so. But I, I absolutely, you know, Arrival, I just thought hit, hit all the boxes for me. Yep. Uh, personally, I thought it was filmed just beautifully. The acting was great. Uh, Amy Adams, I think was the, I think that's the name of the actress who was the, yes. pri the, the, the primary focus. And then you have uh, Jeremy Renner in there as well. And I thought that those two, the chemistry between them was, was definitely palpable. And I thought it was, it was good. And then just the way, so of course I like the, the alien aspect of it, the sci-fi um, the way that they're trying to solve this problem and just the way it was filmed too from you know how it had the cutscenes. you think she's doing flashbacks but she's not Correct. she's doing yeah it's just yes. I just was like don't give it away yeah. I don't want to give it away but yeah I, I definitely don't want to give it away but it's just something that kind of it was a nice little twist that throws you that the, 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 that he threw in there I just thought it was a wonderful movie right which just kind of set me down that path of really enjoying like right. this director and being excited about what it is that he's producing. And I enjoyed and, Dune too. So, and you come out of arrival thinking about it and replaying yeah. it in your head. Cause as you said, yeah. it's told in a way, it's told in a way that tricks you. Um, yes. Precisely. In a way that, <laughs> and that, that tricks you in a way, not unfairly, but tricks you in a way that makes you come out pleasurably feeling like you've been had and wanting to sort of replay it in your head and put the pieces back to get sort of line them up in, in, yeah. in, in chronological order and go, Oh, that's what what's happening there. Yeah, um, no, yeah. If you can't, if you if you are leaving a movie and you can't stop talking about it and stop thinking about it, mm -hmm. I think that I think that they, the director did a very good job. Yeah, yeah. And another one, you know, we were talking about Christopher Nolan. While my favorite movie of Nolan is Interstellar, just because I'm a huge sci-fi nut and mm -hmm. I love the black holes and the wormholes and stuff like that. But I think his best movie, uh, Memento, was great. 
by the way. I mean, very different in the way he pieces things together. And it's just a completely different movie. But I absolutely loved Inception. Yeah. Inception was one of those movies I just could not stop thinking about. It was so different. The visuals were breathtaking. The directing was fantastic. Um, the acting was so good. Leo Leonardo DiCaprio was the was the lead on that. But just all the all the surrounding characters too. I just I was like wow. I was like kind of blown away by that movie. And I falls over. What's that? You think the spinning top falls over? Yeah, that's it. Like I couldn't I couldn't decide. <laughs> I mean that, that that's it's like one of those movies when you. I walked out of it and I just, I was talking to friends about it. I was talking to family. I was like, what's mm -hmm. going on here? What are they doing here? I mean, I love that movie so much that I even went as, I think one Halloween, I was a character from Inception. <laughs> Nobody knew what I was, but I was really, yeah. the really like well-dressed individual. And I was carrying around one of the totems, the one that Leo uh -huh. had. Yep. And like, I was a character for Halloween. That's how much I loved inception mm -hmm. and i was like wow yeah. this movie well, is you so know, we, different we do with the movies we love we do yeah. strange things yeah exactly <laughs> so that's part of what makes movies wonderful but anyway all right so the movie industry in general has gone through shifts over the past you know 10 15 years the advent of netflix and other types of streaming newer technologies are you you know happy about the direction that uh, things are moving are you kind of like well you know new technologies it's you know as we we touched on a little bit earlier you know they just kind of happen you have to adapt to them i mean what are your thoughts in general with the well whole streaming i mean thing? it's this is one reason um i left the boston globe uh okay. you know, after 19 years was that i felt among them you know a bunch of different reasons i've been in one place for for two decades, it was time to try something new. Um, but I also felt that the way that um, newspapers and magazines, not just the Globe, the way they cover movies and review movies, no longer reflects the way we watch them, um, mm -hmm. which is increasingly at home on streaming, you know, or, or in different formats. Um, and the other thing that I that I um, made me want to start the watch list and the, the email newsletter that I'm doing now was that uh, you have Netflix, right? Yes. Do you have Amazon Prime? I do. Um, do you have Hulu? Yes. Okay. Uh, do you have Disney <laughs> Plus? Do you have HBO Max? Do you have, um, you know, uh, Criterion Channel? Do you have uh, Peacock? Um, do you have Paramount Plus? Um, so I don't have all of those that you mentioned, right. but I do have access to, and I say I have access because, as you know, you know, it's a problem with the streaming services and something you're trying to push back on is password sharing. So I have access to a lot of these services because mm -hmm. other people that I know have access and they share. But uh, yeah, I have access to HBO Max. I have a Peacock subscription right now because it gets paid for through like one of my credit cards or something like that. Mm -hmm some sort of promotional thing. I tried out Paramount Plus for a little bit, but I ended up canceling because I don't want to have too many subscriptions going at the same time. Right. Uh, so what else do I have? I don't have Disney Plus, but I'm I'm a streamer. Yeah, I mean, I'm mostly, yeah, I'm like a lot of people where I don't have a cable subscription. I just have internet. So I just kind of have access to these subscription services where there's, yeah, these streaming services. Right. And, and and like me and like everybody else, you have to think about which ones do you subscribe to? Is, are, are there some that like you don't even remember that you subscribe to? So <laughs> yeah. There's all of these out there, but we have no idea what's on them. Aside from the little tier, you know, the top tier that they're promoting that week when you when you go to the homepage. Um, they all have these incredible libraries of movies, new, old, um, and TV shows. 
so the idea of the of the watch list is two or three times a week in the in your in your inbox you get an email from me saying here's here's a good movie on Hulu or on Netflix um, and it came out ten years ago or it came out last week or it's you know um, and it could be a comedy and it could be a foreign language film it could be an action film um, could be a documentary and I you know I often will sort of talk about the Movie, new movies in theaters as well. So every Friday, I kind of here's you know the the, the ones that are in theaters and also premiering on demand. Um, so just to be a guide to help people find good movies because it's remember what it was like to go. Are you old enough to remember going into video stores? You know, I am. And, yeah, I remember that. Blockbuster. You try and pick a movie, and your eyes would just glaze over after like the second shelf, and you just grab something you are familiar with. Um, so the Tiber's watch list is an attempt to help you and me and everybody I know find a way through that just overwhelming amount of content. So that's the downside to the streaming revolution. Uh, there are too many channels. There's too much content. There's too many great TV shows. Um, and when I say too many, well, you know, it's 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 great for the Hollywood production community and for writers and directors and and crew. They're all, you know, everybody's working. Um, and uh, but there's only so many hours in the day. And I do think that um, we're going to see a some kind of consolidation at some point. Right now, each studio has its own proprietary streaming platform. You know, it used to just be Netflix and Amazon, and now, um, you know. Universal's getting in with Peacock and um, uh, Warner Brothers has HBO Max and Disney has Disney Plus and um, everybody's got um, got one. Um, and they're putting their stuff behind, you know, a uh, gate. You have to pay for it, um, which is another reason I say that, you know, don't forget about physical media. If you, there's a movie you love, um, get it on disc and because mm -hmm. you know, that way it will never be taken away from you or you won't have to keep paying every time you want to see it. Remember when we owned stuff, when we owned, <laughs> you know, music, um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, and even books. Cause you know, if you've got an e-reader, you don't own a book anymore, you rent it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of physical media, as you can see by my shelf. <laughs> um, you have a, you have a few books over there. <laughs> I have a few books in the tops is all DVDs and Blu-rays. Um, Am I happy about it? I, happy is the wrong word. Technology happens. Um, yeah. I'm always interested in it. Um, I was interested, you know, uh, back at Entertainment Weekly, I was the first person by 30 seconds as there, anywhere in any company back in 1994, the first person by 30 seconds to go, what's this World Wide Web thing? Oh, that meant you were the expert, um, you know. <laughs> okay. Which meant I, I actually hand-coded Entertainment Weekly's first web page because um, nobody else it's fine i'll learn html um before you know they had apps that would do that um so i'm always interested in technology i'm always interested in the stories that get told by using it um and the way we amuse ourselves using it uh, i think we're in a period of there are periods of consolidation where um when you only have three network you know channels um, and the periods of upheaval where everybody's trying to get in and make some money and and um, try out new things. And that's where we are now. And I don't know when that's going to end and or how it's going to shake out. I don't think it's going to be shake out in the interest of the consumer. Mm -hmm. I think shake out in the interest of the um, 
intellectual property owners, the corporations that, uh, yeah. that own the films. Uh, and they do not have your or my interest at heart. They want to just keep us paying. So it, it pays to be creative about thinking your way through that maze. And I'm a, I'm a proponent of what I call toggling, which means unsubscribing from a service, like subscribing to Hulu for a month so you can watch the, the series that you want to watch and then going online and, and not forgetting to unplug. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, it's a pain, it's a pain in the butt. Um, but anyway, that, that's, um, that's the world we're living in now. And that's the world I'm trying to help people navigate with Tiger's watch list. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, a lot of players have, as you said, entered into the game since Netflix disrupted the industry. And it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. And it's definitely not in the interest of the consumer. It's always about maximizing profits because you know these these are publicly traded companies, so that's what they want to do. So I don't I don't know exactly where what that's going to lead to, and maybe like you said, owning starting to own physical uh, physical copies as uh, as kind of an insurance is 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 the way to move forward. I know my dad is a huge proponent of that. My dad actually got me into film at one point. Mm -hmm. He was big into acting, and he ended up. Mm -hmm going to college and became an, uh, he was an English major. And I think what he really wanted to do was write screenplays and things like that. But mm -hmm. he ended up um, having me pretty young and then his life took a different course, but mm -hmm. he, he has an expansive movie collection of all these wonderful Blu-rays and like DVDs that he's collected over the years. And while he is subscribed to streaming services, he, the movies that he likes in particular, he always buys. Right. And uh, for example, yeah, exactly. And, what I noticed recently is that some of these Blu-rays are offering a digital download as well. So for example, I recently watched with him because we, we get together and watch movies every once in a while because that's what we do. That's how we bond. We love movies mm -hmm. is uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, huge Ghostbusters fans. So uh -huh. he's like, I just bought this Blu-ray DVD. We watched that. And he was asking me if I had purchased a copy, yet, uh, a copy yet. And I was like, no, I haven't gotten around to it yet. I think I was thinking about buying it on buying on like Amazon or something like that. He's like, well, this Blu-ray came with a free digital. I'm not going to use it. So why don't you just take it? So that, I think that that's kind of interesting how with the, with the, with the DVDs these days, in order to entice the buyers, what they're doing is offering you both a hard copy and a digital. Right. So, and where does the digital live? It's, I guess it stays on the, on the. Yeah. So there's a particular uh, company that owns the rights to distribute that, I guess, mm -hmm. with the, with the DVD companies. And then you can link up various streaming accounts. So for me, I linked my Amazon Prime to this particular company, and then I now have it available on my Prime account. Right. So, but again, if for whatever reason that copyright goes away, yep. that movie goes away. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that's a very good point. So then I would have to, maybe I'll have to buy it again. So right. yeah, the, the whole digital space is interesting these days. So yep. uh, one thing I did want to ask you, uh, before I let you go here, Ty, is we live in a world that's very driven by science and engineering. And sometimes the arts get pushed to the side. Mm. And I'm just curious as to your thoughts to how how art, you know, being a movie critic, which is clearly an art, watching these wonderful movies throughout the years, how it's helped you to, I suppose, like think more creatively about the world. Mm. Because sometimes we get stuck in our boxes, like I, I was talking earlier with science, um, engineering is like this too, where you, where you have a checklist yeah. and it's very objective. 
And sometimes we forget to, I suppose, think a little bit more creatively. So I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are on that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think of movies as a two-hour, generally speaking, more or less, window onto every movie is a window onto a different planet. Is is a way of looking, you know, looking through this window um, onto a different experience, um, a different way of thinking, behaving, um, and uh, the more of those windows you look through, the broader you are as a person. Um, it's not lived experience, but it's it's mediated experience, if you will. Um, it's experience taken in, and and we all know movies that well. You know, Avatar is an example of one that literally it's, it's a window onto another planet that feels very, very real because of how it was filmed. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking of movies that, um, uh, one of my favorite movies is a, uh, is a Iranian film called where is, where's the um, friend's house. It's about 20 years old, incredibly lovely fable about young children. It's, it's, it's tells a story about, human kindness that is one of the most moving things I've ever seen. Um, and it's set in a tiny village in Iran, in like the desert, um, a mountain, mountain a village. And uh, literally I'm looking into a world that I would never have been able to appreciate otherwise, that I didn't know was there. Um, mm -hmm. and, and really making a connection with um, these characters as humans like myself um, and having experiences in, in ways that broaden anybody who sees that movie. Um, and it's, you know, and you can say the same thing about, uh, you know, something that's a total entertainment. Um, every, every movie is a two hour window. Um, and the more of those you see, the, the better. But I will also say to your point, we always, we always have wanted to tell ourselves and each other's stories. And back 2000, 3000, 4000 years ago, so we call those myths, you know, mm -hmm. um, and 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 sagas and epics about heroes and gods and uh movies once we learned how to make these machines that could throw those stories on a wall um you know with with gods that we call movie stars um they they're still stories they're still stories and we tell ourselves those stories because we want to see what will happen if we do one thing or another. What happens if you get too proud? What happens if you get too ambitious? What happens if you fall in love with the wrong person? Um, the stories act that out and act as um, warnings and cautionary tales, but also um, aspirations and hopes and 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 encouragements. Um, and sometimes all all of those at once. Science doesn't do that. Science does. Science quantifies um, and. And um, and reveals um, art makes connections and and again yeah when I say art you can it, it can be very abstract but it's still speaking to you emotionally in ways that something more concrete can't touch um, you know uh, uh, the there's a famous line from a Jean Luc Godard film where he trots out a uh, Hollywood director named Stan Fuller and asks him what, you know, what's, what's cinema. And he says, cinema is, is love, hate, greed, anger, in a word, emotion. Um, mm. And um, that's what we go to be transported by. I mean, even documentaries, the well-made documentary transports you and makes you feel something. Um, and so in that way, it's, 
It's um, accessing a different part of your brain uh, than um, science does, which can also, you know, uh, STEM field can can lead to incredible awe, um, but a different, you know, um, in a different compartment of the brain than yeah. great art does. So I hope that sort of helps answer your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, uh, no, I definitely agree with you. I think that art is super important and which is why a lot of times you see people try to art, uh, integrate the arts into STEM and they call it STEAM. They're <laughs> yes. trying to bring into this creativity. And I just think it's so important. And that, you know, people joke about the starving artist all the time. And it's like, this is such an important aspect of who we are as humans. Mm -hmm. And it just shouldn't be pushed to the periphery. And I know that people appreciate movies, but you think in, in music and whatnot, but it's just, it's a, only a select few individuals really that are at the pinnacle of their game that really get pushed in front of all of these, uh, you know, to the masses. And there's a lot of people who would like to go down this route, but they just can't because they're not able to support themselves financially. Right. And maybe if society valued it a little bit more and appreciated what the arts brings to human culture, that, uh, yeah, that more people would be able to do it and you know, think more creatively. I just, I think it's a, an integral aspect too of science, what I do, like learning how to think more creatively and trying to figure out how I can branch out into different aspects of human culture in order to be able to do that. And one of the things I love to do is I like to draw. I like to, um, I'm not doing it now, but create music, uh, mm -hmm. play musical instruments or mm -hmm. watch movies like I'm big into. And I, you know, this stems from my dad, as I was talking about earlier, but just the enjoyment of film. Uh, in general, going out and seeing movies and then trying to analyze it, appreciating the the directing, the acting, the writing, et cetera. So, but uh, anyway, Ty, it's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I just want to thank you so much again for stopping thank by. You. Where can people connect with you online? Okay, so if you go to your browser and type in tiberswatchlist.substack.com um, and maybe you can put it up on the, uh, you know, on the, on the on the website, uh, the link um, t y b u r r s w a t c h l a s t dot substack dot com. You can sign up for my newsletter. It is free. There is a paid component. If you want to pay, you will get extra content. You'll be able to comment, and I will thank you very much. Um, and because this is how I'm making my living now, and yeah. um, uh, but I'm pretty. I, I like writing, and I like talking about movies. So. Like I said, two or three times a week, you'll get something from me. Um, and hopefully it will lead you to, you know, I figure if it leads you to like three or four good movie experiences or good viewing experiences you wouldn't have had otherwise, then I hope it'll be worth it. All right, wonderful. Uh, anyway, for those of you that are stopping by, thank you so much. Uh, I really hope that you enjoyed the conversation. I know it's a bit different than what we normally do, but I love movies and I couldn't pass this opportunity up to talk to Ty here about what he's doing, all the different movies that are coming out and how to think more creatively uh, through the arts. Definitely go ahead and share the episode, hit that like button, reach out. We always love hearing from you and stay tuned for more great content coming your way. Take care.